radar. Well, the public is only beginning to understand the extent of the crimes committed by Sam Bankman-Fried, a cryptocurrency entrepreneur who lost billions of dollars after his exchange, FTX, was revealed to be a Ponzi scheme. Sam Bankman-Fried, better known as SBF, has seen his net worth plunge from $10 billion to effectively nothing in the course of a few days. He's declared bankruptcy, was recently questioned by the police in the Bahamas, where he resides, etc. John Ray III, who was brought in to manage Enron following that company's destruction, is now the CEO of FTX. In a court filing last week, he said he has never seen such a, quote, complete failure of corporate control, including at Enron. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented, he said. SPF engaged in extreme levels of deception to trick people into thinking his crypto exchange was worth more than it actually was. He effectively paid investors, employees, and vendors shares of the company his, through his token, FTT, and loaned it out to his quantitative investment firm, Alameda Research. The company seemed like it was worth more than it actually was at the end of the day. So this was an elaborate house of cards that fooled investors, celebrities, Democratic politicians, here's SBF interviewing Bill Clinton and Tony Blair at a crypto conference that he put on earlier this year. Indeed, SBF had aspirations to play in Democratic Party politics. This election cycle, he was the second most prolific funder of Democratic candidates after George Soros. I talked about that on my radar last week, of course, but here's some new news. Not only was he a funder of Democratic political causes, he was also a funder of progressive and mainstream media. According to the journalist Teddy Schleifer, SBF gave money to Vox Media, the progressive news explainer website created by liberal bloggers Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias. Vox also owns the New York Magazine. SBF made a grant to our friends at The Intercept. That publication received $500,000 a few months ago, had another $250,000 on the way, and was due to receive $3.25 million from SBF in coming years. Acting Editor-in-Chief Ryan Hodge notes that SPF's bankruptcy will leave The Intercept with a significant hole in its budget and has asked readers to consider making donations. SBF gave money to Semaphore, a new journalism project created by Ben Smith, formerly the media columnist at The New York Times, and before that, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. And he was in the, SBF was in the process of giving $5 million to ProPublica. Now, ostensibly, this was in support of research to understand the COVID-19 pandemic and to prevent future pandemics. And to be clear, I believe that much of the pandemic-related journalism done by ProPublica, The Intercept, and other SBF-backed outlets is of high quality. We've cited it on this show. But SPF's own attitude toward his funding seems to be that it's all for show, that it's a front, literally. Here's how he described ethics in private messages with a Vox reporter. When asked if ethics is mostly a front, SBF replied, yeah, that's not all of it, but it's a lot. So in that case, what did he think he was buying with all his millions that he spent on media companies? Well, here's one answer, favorable coverage. And boy, did he get what he wanted. If you scrutinize the mainstream media, you'll find that SBF was drowning in gushing magazine profiles. Importantly, the news of his vast fraud and deception has not completely ended the favorable coverage. He's now benefiting from what I would describe as soft coverage. The mainstream media is treating him the way they would treat one of their friends, someone they like. 
Maybe he did some bad things, but hey, his heart was in the right place, wasn't it? The New York Times report on this disaster uses passive, soft language to disguise blame at every turn. The headline says it all. How Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire collapsed. Mr. Bankman-Fried said in an interview that he had expanded too fast failed to see warning signs, but he shared few details about his handling of FTX's customers' funds. Expanded too fast? Failed to see warning signs? Flew too close to the sun? He defrauded people out of millions and billions of dollars. The empire didn't collapse of its own accord. It collapsed because he built it out of fraudulent materials. And then in a recent Substack post on SBF, uh, Matt Iglesias noted that he had a meeting with SBF and declined a business opportunity with him, even though they share a similar philosophy called effective altruism. Iglesias's coverage of this of this the SBF uh, crypto collapse spotlights the fact that without SBF's lavish funding of Democratic causes, quote, it's plausible Trump would still be in the White House. Those are some kind words for someone whose vast, whose crimes are so vast, alleged crimes. And uh, I, I think it's worth wondering how much of this spending on media was exactly what SBF is, is now claiming in those leaked DMs, sort of that it was a front um, and that it was in order to inspire favorable coverage. So uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they didn't receive money, as far as we know, from SBF. But these are outlets that have had apocalyptic coverage of tech ventures. The New York Times, their reporting on tech makes it sound like every new development, Clubhouse, Twitter, Facebook, corrupting our democracies, the threat of, of, of those billionaires and how they'll spread misinformation, etc. When it came to this guy, it was pretty blasé, and it still is. I don't get it. What do you think, Bacha? All right. So I, I, the thing you're pointing out, <clears throat> that two things happened. He gave money to media companies and to Democratic politicians and that he's gotten favorable, favorable coverage and a real lack of oversight and soft peddling. Those are both true. And I, it, you're right that the Occam's razor explanation is that one led to the other. But I'm going to try to make the argument that they didn't, because just from working in a newsroom, um, you know, the way that it works is, you know, your boss doesn't come to you and say, hey, we got this money from this guy. Therefore, the coverage should look like this. I think what happened is, is that the billionaire class and the media class, as it's composed now from leftist elites and the Democratic Party, have class solidarity. So I, I don't think that the money is mm -hmm. buying the coverage or the treatment. I think that they all have common interests, which are the common interests of rich liberal people. And yeah. so I think it's a little bit less conspiratorial, but what I applaud you for for covering this and for pointing to yeah, it because I, yes, the coverage is insane. <laughs> right. And I and I take that, you know, I want to be very careful with what I'm claiming here because I work for a magazine, a nonprofit magazine reason that receives donations. Now, I feel like we're often accused of like, oh, you're just doing what your right. corporate master or your your rich masters are telling you to do. I feel like I get that criticism a lot from people in progressive media who also have their own funders <laughs> and like, well, are you saying you just do whatever they tell you to do. So I absolutely uh, take your point. I'm just trying to square the treatment, uh, like specifically the New York Times, how they talk about SBF versus Mark Zuckerberg. And it's it's just, it's it's interesting. It doesn't quite add up to me. You're, you're right that it's not like, oh, so it's more someone gives you funding because they agree with your mission, they like your mission and want to support you. It's not so much we're telling you what to do. But it's clear that this guy did a good job of making him seem like a hero to a lot of journalists who 
who are otherwise very discerning, in some cases I think almost too critical of, uh, of, of some other figures in, in related fields. So it's, uh, it's interesting and we're yeah. going to continue to unravel it because man, there was a lot of spending um, every, every which way. But we'll have more rising right after this. The Department of Justice announced a special counsel for Donald Trump-related Mar-a-Lago and January 6th criminal investigations. Attorney General Merrick Garland said in a statement on Friday, based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I've concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Two reports analyzing two different criminal investigations into Trump have reached the conclusion that there is enough evidence to bring charges against him. One probe is examining the former president's actions in Georgia leading up to January 6th, and the other is led by the Justice Department as it explores the mishandling of sensitive government documents at Mar-a-Lago. And so the fact that, you know, Trump is a candidate, I, I suppose, makes the federal government think there's more, uh, I guess, more at stake to investigating him over, over these things. As to the former, you know, my view has always kind of been, I absolutely hold Trump, you know, responsible for what happened on January 6th. And the proper thing to do uh, in that in that situation was for him to be impeached and removed from office. He wasn't. That was a kind of acquittal, in my view. So I'm not sure why continuing to, you know, explore all of that stuff. Very bad. But at some point, it's for voters then. It was for the Senate. They didn't reject him. So then it's for voters to reject him or not. It's not really for law enforcement to kind of tip the scales. Now, the Mar-a-Lago thing might end up being different. We're still kind of trying to understand uh, what happened there, whether to the extent to which sensitive uh, government documents that were not declassified could be taken, even though, you know, he has vast declassifying powers. So I don't know. For so long, the media has promised that, well, this will be the end of Trump. Eventually, he's going to be prosecuted for, for all these wrongdoings. I've always kind of taken the view that, look, the, the voters are going to have to reject him if you want him dealt with. And in some sense, they have rejected him. They, they voted uh, not to elect him president a second time. Um, I, I think this election was actually a pretty striking rebuke of Trump on, on many fronts in that the candidates who most cling to what he wanted lost the most humiliatingly. So I, I, that seems to be the you know, direction we're taking with Trump. Now, whether there's some shortcut for, for law enforcement or the government, we'll, we'll see. But um, I don't have a lot of faith, and I know a lot of Americans don't have faith in the institutions like the FBI, like law enforcement, because there are examples now of, of really um, unfair or partisan. You know, these are not impartial organizations. They're not perceived to be that way, and I understand why Americans feel that way. But what's your take? No, I, I agree with you, Robbie. I, I, just, I just do not understand why this is necessary, especially at this moment when voters are in the midst of repudiating Trump, specifically over destroying his own legacy with his January 6th behavior and his behavior ever since then. I just think that there, there's just such an error here. You know, a president, a former president, he's not just a person. He is a representation of the votes of the millions and millions and millions of Americans who chose him as the head of the body politic in this country. And the damage that is done 
to the perception of our democracy with things like this. I just think you can't overstate that. You know, the side that is so obsessed with democracy, this democracy, that um, are undermining it because they are undermining the ability of their political rivals and voters who choose differently than them to have trust in the system, to have trust in the institutions. You know, it, I could say it's obviously no one's above the law. If Trump mm -hmm. was accused of killing somebody like you would, you know, what want law enforcement to step in. But we know what happened on January 6th. We had I mean, we had that whole investigation. We know blow by blow, minute by minute what he did. We know the failures of his character. We know the failures of his leadership. I totally agree with you at this point. It is up to the voters to decide. And about the documents at Mar-a-Lago, my gosh, like, come on. Like, that was Trump clinging on to something that he believed was his and, like, the toddler that he is in his heart refusing to give it up because mm. it's mine, right? I mean, like, we know him. We know his character at this point. There's no mysteries, as far as I can tell, that are left that would justify this kind of behavior. Hmm. Well, former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan weighed in on Trump's waning popularity when asked what 2024 will look like if Trump's on the ticket. I don't think he'll win. He's just I think unelectable. That, yeah, I think he's unelectable because that suburban voter, do you think he's more popular since the 2008 election with a swing voter in America or less? No evidence of that at all. Yeah. But he does seem to have a hold on a good chunk of the Republican Party, whether or not it's a majority, uh, we'll see. That's right. Uh, but I think, I think he's going to continue to lose altitude because we want to win. And we know with him, we lose. We have a string of losses to prove that point. And there are a lot of really good, capable conservatives who people, I think, like uh, that are more than capable of not only being good conservatives in office, but can win elections. I, I, I was not an ever-Trumper. Uh, you worked with a speaker. I mean, you, I, worked, yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I, I governed with him, and I'm very proud of those days. I'm proud of the accomplishments of the tax reform, the deregulation of criminal justice reform. I'm really excited about the judges we got on the bench, not just the Supreme Court, but throughout the judiciary. But I am a never again Trumper. Why? Because I want to win. At the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference in Las Vegas this weekend, a slew of Republicans signify that they will be moving forward to run in 2024 after Trump's campaign announcement. Some of these names include Trump's UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, Trump's Secretary of State and CIA Director Mike Pompeo, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. And on the topic of 2024, Nikki Haley said on Saturday that she's, quote, never lost an election and is looking at a run for president in a, quote, serious way. Um, here's my thing with this, Robbie. I think that the uh, Paul Ryan wing of the Republican Party, the Republican Party as it was before Trump kind of took an ax to it, they're desperate to move on from him, not just because of, you know, Trump the man, but I think they are desperate to move on from the insight he brought into the class war in America and the abandonment of the working class. He really put their interests from an economic point of view front and center. And there are those within the Republican coalition who are just desperate to erase that impact. And I think that is the divide you're going to see um, as 2024 starts to approach is which candidates are going to take Trump's insight that the working class has been abandoned and forgotten and is desperate for change and run with it. And which ones are going to try to drag the party back to its sort of pre-Trump free market days where it was the donor class that really determined everything as opposed to the voter class. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough observation, though I don't think Paul Ryan's political calculus there is wrong. I think he's 
correct that there are not enough people in the country who are going to vote for Donald Trump? His observation, there's no way Donald Trump becomes more or better liked among independent swing voters, Democrats, et cetera. He's, he's right. It's not, that ship is only sailing in one direction. So they really do need to find someone else. But the interesting thing is here, look, Nikki Haley, uh, Pompeo, uh, Sununu, perpetual candidate Chris Christie, Look, if you crowd that field the same way you did in uh, that, that would be the swiftest way to get Trump again, is if you have 13 people up mm -hmm. on stage. Uh, people really don't want Trump to be the nomination. They should bow out because it's like, let's be honest with ourselves. It's going to be Trump or it's going to be DeSantis. Uh, it, I find it ludicrous, the idea that one of these other things, these kind of perpetual, um, respectable conservative types like Nikki Haley, I don't think there's actually really a constituency for her either. Um, it, it's it's going to be DeSantis or it's going to be Trump. Anybody else getting up there, if they really want Trump gone at all costs, they should not run. That's like that's just that's just the reality. Um, it, how, I could be wrong, but that's how I see it. Um, obviously, we'll have to see. But you, do you think, Bachi? There's no way you don't think like Chris Christie has a you know snowball's chance in hell of being the Republican candidate for president in the next election cycle, do you? No, I agree with your analysis. The problem is, is there's no downside to running for president, yeah. right? It's sort of a big career boost. And so for a politician who maybe, you know, is ambivalent about whether Trump is the nominee or not, you know, they're, they're sure they're not going to be the nominee. Uh, you know, there's very little incentive to bow out. They're, um, but they're running for cable news contributor deals. That's what yes, they're running exactly, for. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we'll have more rising right after this. Twitter CEO Elon Musk says he will not restore the account of so-called Sandy Hook truther Alex Jones. This despite reinstating a cast of once banned high-profile accounts in the past week, including those of former President Trump, Kanye West, and Jordan Peterson. In a tweet justifying the decision, Musk wrote, My firstborn child died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics, or fame. Yesterday, Dr. Peter McCullough was trending as users pressured the chief twit to bring the famed mRNA researcher back after his account was banned for spreading alleged vaccine misinformation. Townhall.com Scott Moorefield tweeted, Dr. McCullough and many more still being banned for not being wrong, but for being right before the world was ready, why are they still being silenced on this platform? According to independent writer Caitlin Johnson, Musk has yet to actually bring free speech back to Twitter as promised. In a recent op-ed, Johnson said, quote, reinstating a handful of celebrities has no meaningful effect on the free expression of normal people. Speech is not becoming any freer on Twitter in any way that actually matters, and from all appearances, it's still functioning as a narrative control tool for the most powerful empire that has ever existed. I don't know that I uh, totally agree with that, but I, I do get the point that we're being a little bit um, arbitrary. It looks to me like who's coming back and who's not, which maybe that's the point. Maybe it's just this is not a democracy. This is a this is a Elon monarchy, uh, and he's just going to decide who gets to come back or not based on what seems like very personal reasons. He was right. saying that he would not allow Alex jo Jones back because he's had the experience of having lost a child. Um, I mean, of course, there are people who've had the experience of losing a child because of, like, the president's drones and war-making sure. policies, so it's that, that Donald Trump's back. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think that that is exactly the reason why the you know the commentary that this is not is not in any way an expansion of free speech is completely right. The very complaint that people had legitimately of Twitter before was that there was no consistency or transparency in the decisions that were being made about who was banned. And now who there's wasn't. transparency, but not consistency. Well, and, and there isn't mostly transparency. Mostly, it has to do with his independent, random proclivities, thoughts and feelings in Twitter polls. And um, one uh, big account online, she's not associated with anything, but she's a, a big kind of poster, a shoe on head, made this point that this tweet, this admission um, from Elon Musk that the decision to not admit Alex Jones, the fact that he admits that it's entirely due to his personal experience of the tragedy of his own child's death, is an admission that it's just whatever Elon Musk wants, whatever Elon Musk wants. It is thinks. whatever Elon Musk That's wants. That's a problem for people who actually well, have an investment in the free speech interest of those who don't happen to align with whatever Elon Musk has to say. I think it's in some ways, refreshingly honest. Um, it's just, it's his company and the rules are going to be whatever he wants. And that's how it always was. But there was, it was more confusing and it was unclear and we didn't know. Uh, I think there's a better justification he could have made, to be clear, for keeping Alex Jones off the platform, but allowing some of these other uh, people back in, the, in that Alex Jones is the subject of a massive um, lawsuit. A li there are perhaps liability concerns for letting Alex Jones back on, given um, the, the volume of his mis mistruths and how they've been adjudicated and actually have monetary damages. Right, but not for the platform, unless we're getting rid of Section 230 right. all of a sudden. The point is, Alex Jones under... Look, I am, this is not me advocating for one position or another, but it's obviously inconsistent. Kanye West said a number of things that exposed him and it caused him to have a, a lot of financial consequences to pay. Donald Trump obviously is a, being accused of provoking an insurrection and is being investigated as a consequence. You can't look at those figures, let them back on the platform, and look at Alex Jones and say, because I happen to have experienced a loss that makes me antagonistic to you and what you've done, I'm not going to let you on the platform. That is not free speech. You can say what you want about how it's it refreshing is not Speech. It has nothing to no do disagreement. with it's what not everybody was saying they cared so much about with Twitter, yeah. which is free speech. And what happened— And what Elon said he cared about. What Elon said he cared about. And, and like, I don't know. I, I read a, an interesting piece about how what Elon is uh, encountering—there was an, another uh, piece of news about how he uh, is basically halting his— verification plan, right? There was a lot of controversy over the past couple of weeks because he enabled anybody to pay $8 to get a verification blue check. Um, seemingly misunderstanding the point of the blue check, which, you know, although over time it has a, a acquired a certain kind of value and status, it's about identifying who you are, saying, like, if I my name is Brianna Joy Gray on Twitter, I am, in fact, Brianna Joy Gray in real life. It wasn't actually about status. He implemented this program. Everyone started mock, you know, imitating everybody. He got very upset because a lot of people had fake Elon Musk accounts. And now he's reverted back to the mean. And what people have observed is, we're going to keep seeing this happening. Elon Musk uprooting the policies that were already in effect and then ended, ending up going back to what they were before he became CEO, because those policies were there for a reason. And these are some legitimately difficult questions that people have to wrestle with and figure out. And that's not to say that they couldn't be improved upon and don't need to be improved upon. Elon Musk doesn't have the capacity to improve upon them. But randomly blowing everything up um, is going to cause him to get egg on his face and frequently have to retrace his steps and land exactly where the previous CEO was. I think that's true with some of the moderation decisions. But everyone, you know, a few days ago was talking about, oh, this is the end of Twitter. And if you saw that, oh, it's about to go down. It's falling apart. He got rid of too many employees. And 
seems to be running fine. I don't think it's going to suddenly disappear. I think it will end up ultimately being the case that it didn't need as many, there was too many cooks in the kitchen and it can run fine without them and it's not going anywhere. And he claims that users and engagement and all that is way up. Uh, anecdotally, that seems to be the case with my own tweets. Right, but so. he doesn't make money off of users, and that's the fundamental issue. In fact, he understands Well, he's trying that. to make money off of users. Well, he understands that because when he was buying the company and trying to get out of buying the company, part of the reason, that the excuse that he offered, the rationale, I should say, rather, that he offered was because he wanted to have a subscription model, and finding out that so many of the users were, in fact, not real people but bots meant that there weren't enough real people to pay for the model that would make it profitable. That being the case, now he's bought the site that may or may not still be true, and he has to rely on advertisers, and advertisers have been fleeing. And there was a, a good write-up, I think, in the New York Times about this. They're, what they're saying is they, they pay for ads, and they're seeing it next to a surge in hate content. So yes, Twitter usership has been up, but if you're someone who's just trying to sell you know, free frame, you know, art.com or whatever, <laughs> get people's uh, uh, art framed, you're not going to want to go be, be viewed in a stream next to somebody's hate tweet. Um, or porn, or any of these other kinds of things. That well, the porn less was filtered there before. For. It was always right, but it's there. about the algorithm and people making sure that the advertisements are sharing space with those kinds of with those kinds right. of posts. And people are saying it's it's losing the money. I mean, that's from the mouths of advertisers. So again, Elon Musk is going to have to realize that the the thing that he's up against the most isn't some ideologue in the White House, uh, some Democrat who just hates him because they have different politics. It's the advertisers because money talks. That's what all of this is about. Yeah, I don't know if that's totally true. I mean, he might face pressure, and all of these companies have faced massive pressure to delete specific accounts at the behest of the, the White House, the CDC, and the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I think I think so. But Elon Musk has shown a willingness to let those people back on. God, God bless him. But it's not going to earn him money. It's not going to make his site oh, more we'll profitable. We'll ultimately, the thing that he should be concerned about, and I think he is concerned about, having made a $44 billion investment and his Tesla investment having tanked enormously as he has to draw from that company to help keep Twitter afloat is whether or not he can get the main uh, economic support for the website attracted back to the website so that that $44 billion investment doesn't become one of the biggest economic sinkholes in uh, entrepreneurial history. I mean, I don't think we should count him out yet. He's a, he is a smart businessman. He seems eccentric. Um, his, his habits of like responding to every single person on Twitter um, are interesting and kind of crazy, but uh, Look, I wouldn't, I'll, I'll I wouldn't be impressed dead yet. And I'll consider it to, I don't, I'm not interested in him being a smart businessman, which I think is very much a dispute. Him having basically used his family wealth to buy Tesla and not having, having been, a, you know, he's not attributed, none of the innovations that make the, the car company good are attributed to him or his personal intellect, but he can demonstrate his ability not just to be a good businessman, but someone who is thoughtful about these important speech issues that he said he cared about. What he did with SpaceX is pretty in, impressive. By actually digging in and trying to work through what is difficult. Like, smart people thinking very hard have struggled with the question of how to handle content moderation for years. And I think what is more, most disturbing is that you can be as smart as you want, but if you're so hubristic that you think that the, the thousands of people employed by a company, the, 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 the First Amendment lawyers, the, the scholars, the random people, the users who have been struggling with how to make this, pro, this platform better haven't come up with solutions and that you're going to, in the blink of an eye, say laissez-faire, um, free speech absolutism is going to resolve the issue, then... Well, but he's not actually saying free speech absolutism because he just said he's not going to bring Alex exactly. Jones back, right? He's exactly. coming up with his own policy, but it could be better than what they exactly. came up with because and what they had was very and bad. He's, and he's having to walk a lot of stuff back, and I think that he's going to have to walk a lot of the... Um, 
uh, uh, readmissions to the platform back, depending on, on what happens and what happens with advertisers in particular. More rising right after this. Stay with us. England and six other soccer teams dropped plans to wear anti-discrimination armbands at the Qatar World Cup after FIFA threatened them with sanctions. FIFA notified seven European teams that players would be subject to sporting sanctions, including automat automatic yellow cards for wearing one-love armbands. The target of the anti-discrimination message was understood to be anti-homosexuality laws in Qatar. The Wall Street Journal reports. MSNBC's Ayman Maladeen commented on criticisms of Qatar hosting the World Cup and double standards of the U.S. Let's watch. While it's fair to question and criticize Qatar, I wonder if this debate is truly about migrant workers' rights and human rights, or is it that European countries who view themselves as the guardians of global soccer for their own selfish economic purposes can't stomach the idea that an Arab Middle Eastern country will host this venerable global gathering? I wonder if any of these American pundits grandstanding about human rights will call for the U.S. to be stripped of hosting the 2026 World Cup for the way elected leaders in this country and our judicial system in this country have rolled back reproductive rights or are trying to ban the word gay in public schools or even ban books. I think that's some transparently absurd whataboutism, but... Uh this sounds like a terrible idea to have hosted the World Cup in this country. I, but I, 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 I look. If you want to say you, there should not be political messages just in general on people's armbands because sports should try to be politically neutral, I guess that would be fine. Uh, this seems actually that this is clearly specifically targeted to appeasing this country's anti-homosexuality laws. But they should not have gotten themselves into this situation by having the World Cup there. Is what I would say. They also banned beer for people in the, for fans attending. Did you hear that? Is, is alcohol ordinarily yes. allowed in the country? No. Okay, so that's consistent with the rules of the But country. they're allowing it in certain of like special box, like people who paid extra or something, like hmm. the, the very elite people well, are going well, to have I, it. It I just seems I bad. I want to go back to this question of it being um, whataboutism. Um, I don't know that I agree. I'm trying to work through this. Because, look, we talk all the time when we criticize the justifications for U.S. imperialism, something that we agree about, about how we cherry-pick human rights abuses, genuine instances of humanitarian um, need, as being cravenly lifted up by the U.S. as a justification for our involvement. We talked about the women and children being exploited as a reason to um, invade Afghanistan. There was uh, the Gulf War being justified on this idea of, like, babies being thrown out of ventilators. We know this to be the case. And that's not—some of those are lies, but some of it are legitimate—some of it is legitimate bad things right. happening in other parts of the world. Right. It is true that fewer women learn how to read under Taliban control or whatever it is. And it does seem— similarly like a kind of a cherry-picking cherry of wrongdoing. Again, genuine political stances mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of a political leadership that I would disagree with, obviously, on the merits, but in a way that might be calculated to justify American 
um, hegemony and American superiority than it is actually helping the well-being of the people of the, of the folks in this country. And when you look at how America moves through the world, you heard, you know, obviously Joe Biden saying he was going to make Saudi Arabia pariah and then justifying not uh, justifying shielding MBS for an investigation over the death of Jamal Khashoggi. And when you see all these inconsistencies about how we, there was a recent interview this past week with John Stewart, Condoleezza Rice, and Hillary Clinton, where they are still talking about weapons of mass destruction and how America is so different than the rest of the world, and we have to intervene as America's policemen. It's what were they saying about weapons of mass destruction? That it, it was, their, it was, they were mistaken, and, it, and oh. we should all consider it to be a mulligan. You know, that, oh, yeah, that, yeah. that, that kind of a line. Our bad. You know, when you, when you yeah. see rhetoric like that, you know, I don't think that's entirely dissimilar for, from some people in the West who are taking this opportunity, having agreed to participate in this uh, event, to grandstand their own um, moral superiority when it's, I'm not sure that America can claim that ethical superiority when you look at how it's been behaving around the world. Mm, no, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think, while I am a massive critic of a lot of the foreign policy decisions um, the U.S. makes, as are you, I, I mean, I think morally it is fine to grandstand over a nation like Qatar. I, now, I don't think it's necessarily important to 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 you know signal or virtual signal on some kind of social issue that they have a difference with us on. Not which is not to say that I mean their their views are I think are wrong, but I I understand why people get upset at like all, like within the U.S. context, right? All businesses say we're not going to do business in Georgia or or, or Indiana or wherever because of some religious freedom law. But then they don't. Then they, oh, but but if Cutter doesn't want you to wear armbands, rainbow armbands, okay, yeah, we're, we're not going to stand up to them. It's only ever standing up to you know bigoted conservative Christian Republicans here. Never standing up to a, a, a much worse version of well, religious yeah, I, extremism. Well, yeah, I think on the individual basis. I mean, there was a people were talking about a particular journalist who is gay and who, you know was wanting to wear the armband, had at one point, was pressured into not wearing it. You know, on an individual basis, I completely understand why people want to take their stands, and I have no feelings about their, their willingness and ability to do so. I do think that there's a media aspect of this, though, that is invested in the idea of kind of heroic Westerners standing up to um, the government of Qatar, the people of Qatar, in a way that doesn't seem—that that it seemed itself cherry-picked. So, for example, one could not go. Yeah. One could choose not to go. One could choose not to participate. Teams could choose to boycott. None of that is happening. Or, I mean, I guess some of that is happening, but people instead are choosing to go and then grant it. So to me, it feels akin to like, one could argue that it's akin to visiting the Vatican and not wanting to follow the rules about covering your arms and legs while you're there. You know, it's perfectly fine to disagree with the Catholic Church, to criticize the Catholic Church, and to not also want to go and look at the Sistine Chapel. But if you want the benefit of going and seeing some artistic masterpiece or looking at it from a historical perspective, to go there and then loudly complain about the fact that it's hot and you don't want to wear a shawl so seems to NFL be— the NFL have—or the NHL or the or baseball, basketball, et cetera, have rules against players kneeling during the anthem? Isn't this kind of like that? Well, I think that if people, if they have those rules, then players have the right to object and to boycott and to, and to end the league. Mm -hmm. But that's the, the question here is whether or not people are trying to have it both ways, going and participating in this event, playing in a country that did not just invent these rules overnight, that they know has 
a, a kind of a humanitarian standards that are not the same as what you would expect in the land. And at the same time, I think not I, not the same, but bad. Well, from my my uh, my perspective, they are. I also think that I'm sorry, it's not both. With two million people in jail and the largest incarcerated population in the world, despite only having a much smaller fraction of the world's population, I think that it is extremely narrow mind, like short sighted, to sit here and judge other people's countries and not have that same expectation, uh, the same judgment as the news commentator there said about what what is America going to say that we don't deserve to hold an upcoming Olympic Games or whatever a kind of national event, global event because of our own bad actions. Not to mention, it's not just about what happens in America. It's about what America is doing all across the world. So we can sit here and say, technically, we have rights to the United States of America. But what does it mean if we're toppling regimes, uh, acting in ways that are creating uh, slave, uh, you know, slave, slave prisons in Libya and destroying the civil rights of people all around the world to sit back, cross our arms and say, oh, we're innocent because technically we have, you know, a Chelsea in Manhattan, you know? But, but we let little girls learn how to read and we don't jail homosexuals. So there are some improvements we have over these countries that could be hosted. Which means what in the context of this conversation? Well, I mean, that's what we're, we're getting into a moral relativism here. No, we're, no, we're not. And I, I had this conversation actually recently on my podcast with Coleman Hughes. And we were kind of have this philosophical conversation about what it means that it's such a common rhetorical device. I'm sorry that conservatives use it say, well, this is better than that. It is better today than it was 60 years ago for black people. Like what that, what those kind of arguments do is often derail more substantive conversations about how things could be improved and what is still wrong to Today. So there's no problem with admitting that there's been improvement for, let's say, black Americans in the States. There's no problem in admitting that there are many, many respects in which the civil rights and living standards of people in the United States, including for women in the United States, is better than the people of Qatar. That does not absolve the United States of responsibility and accountability for our actions, many of which are invisible because we have a media class that doesn't cover what goes on in the rest of the world. And th those of us like ourselves who are very aware of the negative effects of American imperialism, I think, should be cautious about why the media is choosing to draw contrast between Qatar and the United States at the same time that we're happy to avail ourselves of the resources and the events that are happening in Qatar, and at the same time that there is little to no criticism of the way that America enables um, despotic regimes all over the, the, the world as long but as they I, I don't think support we have to us make economically. excuses for Qatar because America just had a ruling on abortion that a lot of people Is it making with. excuses for Qatar? Did well, I make excuses what, for Qatar? No, I think that, that media clip, I think he did, yeah. He made excuses for Qatar? He was pivoted, what about it? Well, you know, maybe that's bad, but. Oh, I, I didn't hear it that way. And I do think that there, I, you know, I have to go back and re-listen, but I think that there is a legitimate criticism, a legitimate scrutiny that should be given to why it is that the U.S. suddenly has an appetite to cover this um, when ordinarily it doesn't. And it is, is what very— What do you mean it doesn't have—the the ability to—the the apparent right to declare political uh, messages during sports games, like, that's a huge topic we've been discussing here. It ordinarily ignores the um, the kind of inequities that we see all over the world, including when it is politically convenient to do so. So, for example, in Israel, for example, in Saudi Arabia, and for example, our allies. So, one of the things that Hillary Clinton said in this interview, or maybe it was Condoleezza Rice, I can't remember which now, um, was that you know 
uh, uh, democracies don't invade other countries, trying to make the distinction between, you know, what, when America intervenes and when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I, felt, I think true. it was Kyle Kalinske who pointed out that America financially supports and is allies with something like 70 odd uh, d d despotic regimes all across the world. And so it really isn't about those. The, when, whenever there's these articulations of principle, over and over again, we see that it's not actually about principle. The principles are real and they exist in the abstract. They exist mm -hmm. outside of the world of politics. But when these politicians, when these warmongers, when when the state and all, when the media class, which is very much tethered with the state, makes these kind of criticisms, it's often not because of the general principle. It's because they're advancing some kind of political um, practice. And that's not the individuals on the ground, not LGBT people who are individually um, concerned with this. But I do think it's worth bringing some scrutiny to why certain people are making these criticisms at this time. That's all. I think it's a perfectly fine thing to analyze. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll continue to get you updates on all the latest stories. There's some specificity for you. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we're available on Roku and other streaming services. Now, in a court filing yesterday, pay attention to this. Lawyers for the suspected shooter in the Club Q uh, shooting, Anderson Aldrich, say their client is non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. The crew over at CNN, however, isn't buying it. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's not anything that we had heard from his background. You know, people have been looking into his background. And uh, I don't know if anybody here, are you guys lawyers? I mean, no. you know, I don't know if the, I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, th it, that's what he's now saying. It, it sounds like they're trying to prepare a defense against a hate crimes charge. That's the least of his problems, legally speaking. But it looks like they're trying to build some kind of sympathy or at least confusion on the question of whether or not this was purely motivated by hate. So it's not just CNN. Some online sleuths are unconvinced as well. After one of Aldrich's neighbors told the Daily Beast they witnessed Aldrich frequently using anti-gay slurs, Twitter user Alejandra... Caraballo wrote, all indications from people who knew the shooter were that he was violent and homophobic. The identification as non-binary is almost certainly a troll. So I looked at that Daily Beast article, and I was actually not totally convinced by that necessarily. Look, it could well be the case that what what people are saying here is, is accurate, that he is not non-binary, that he kind of made this up on the spot, or his attorneys did as a defense against hate crimes. Sure, could be the case. Could be the case that he's extremely homophobic, but it's not, as far as like, in the Daily Beast story, they only had one person saying that, and the person didn't actually even say that he was known for homophobia, just that he had used mm -hmm. the F word slur a lot, which is also something I know, like, that a lot of gay people use, too, so in a sort of kind of reclaimy well, way, surely. so I, who knows, but the Daily Beast is a very, in my view, a very, has become a very sloppy um, kind of journalistic outlet, and, uh, so after I looked at it, I was like, well, there isn't actually a lot of evidence there of that. Could be the case. Was, Just didn't see a lot of evidence. I, I, I agree with the, 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 was it CNN correspondent there who said that the hate crime charge, any hate crime charge is the least uh, of his concerns. You know, he killed five people. Yeah. He killed five people. And I don't think there's a, a, a lot of leeway for him not doing a significant amount of time in jail, probably the rest of his life in jail. So it, it does seem as though if you weigh the kind of legal value of a of a statement like this, of um, uh, of putting out there that he's non-binary versus the kind of cultural impact of it, we saw the cultural impact of it very clearly on Twitter. Immediately, people who were frankly not sympathetic to 
the people who were killed and not sympathetic to LGBTQIA uh, people in general were retweeting it kind of joyously saying, well, this changes the narrative. This is going to um, you know, undermine the cause of liberals. And so I think that people on both sides have to be careful. Uh, we saw what happened with the poll shooting where all of the presumptions about what motivated the shooting ended up not panning out. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of time in the world to wait to see what really was the motive here. There's no need to jump to conclusions. To the extent that, that, that this man went and targeted this location, because he was targeting people of the LGBTQ community, I do think personally on a moral level that makes it worse to hunt down people because of bigotry. But at the end of the day, killing people is horrible. Murder is murder. And I don't want people to overinvest in the notion that it was a hate crime in order to see value in having a conversation about gun control or whatever else can possibly be done, mental health support, whatever needs to be done to prevent tragedies like this happening in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of the kind of hate crime designation at all, frankly. Um, violence is violence, murder is murder. Uh, and a lot of hate crime, it, you know, so, so for if something to count as a hate crime in general, so there has to be an underlying criminal conduct. So it's not, it's not just because of the First Amendment, right? It's not just illegal to be hateful or to hold hateful views. Right. It has to be you assaulted someone, you committed some crime, and then it could be if that crime is animated by specific malice against a protected marginalized group, then you could face additional charges. Maybe you'll get a longer sentence, whatever. Um, that's, even that honestly makes me uncomfortable from a kind of First Amendment standpoint because then it starts to get into motivation. And you, you end up with a lot, of, uh, a lot of crimes where, okay, the person, because people who commit violent crimes tend to be kooky or weird or, or violent or extreme, might have some extreme views. Then you get into, well, did the extreme view motivate this specific attack and you start like trying to like, well, what is in their heart? And and, and also we could just ignore it. Like courts, judges and, and juries can like like sentence someone more aggressively, even without the hate crime designation, they could say, well, you're more culpable because you're a really awful person. Or they could have mitigating circumstances well, or non-mitigating circumstances. Sure. We could do all of that without the actual hate crime designations. It's just my- well, Robbie, what do you make of it. other um, instances where, for example, you can get uh, amplified charges if you kill a, a judge or a police officer. And the logic is that because those people are uniquely vulnerable, they're in the line of um, you know, direct conflict as a police officer, or they are because they've investigated people, thrown people in jail, sentenced people that they could be targeted um, for retribution by you know other other folks related to the, to the convicted, that they need the additional mm-hmm. protection against being targeted. And so we have a higher charge. I think the logic is similar, whether or not you agree yeah, with I, it. I, I would be I would definitely be against that as well. Um, I, I yeah. think I don't like laws that kind of dictate sentencing practices like this to to judges mm-hmm. and juries. I, I want to give judges and juries should have have leeway to they know the, the details of every case. It's different. They can look at a specific case and say, well, yeah, maybe in this case, there's some kind of extreme, really horrific element of it that justifies, you know, greater punishment or lesser punishment. We can, like, that's how the system is supposed to work. We put those decisions in the jury of your well, peers, Robbie, the judge, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, the reason that some kind of sentencing guidelines have been promulgated in the past, and I agree they can be abused, right? Mandatory minimums, I think, can take away necessary um, opportunities for leniency from the justice system. But also the reason guidelines were implemented in the first place is that we had outcomes that were wildly biased, where if you kill a 
white person, you're four times more likely to get the death penalty than if you kill a black person, regardless of your race. And I do think that there needs to be some attention paid to how to minimize sentencing disparities. But I do think I agree with you that I don't think that the amplifications on sentences are necessarily, um, I don't think they necessarily work. I think if you're going to kill a judge, you're going to kill a judge. Um, If you have bias in your heart and are going to murder someone on the basis of their identity, you're going to do that. Um, But uh, it, it, it it is frustrating generally speaking, to see people kind of overly invest in the tragedy of this being solely, solely because of people's identity, even though regardless of what the intent of the shooter is, it certainly has had the effect of terrorizing a community and making them feel very unsafe. Right, right. And the workplace shooting that happened um, last night, right, is is just as horrifying, even if there's no, it is motivated by, you know, anger in the workplace. Is that really, is that really like different or less bad because it's not specific animus against a marginalized it just gets into a very weird and uncomfortable place for me like it's 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 very bad and these people need to be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law and it, it like i don't i don't need to know what they, they like what their views are maybe we need to understand them better if we want to combat it i guess but from the standpoint of right. holding these individuals accountable it just doesn't seem to matter that much like they should be held mm-hmm. accountable because this is these are all terrible terrible things and we want to discuss strategies for preventing them it's, it's a little different than, you know, what the mainstream media fixates on, I think. Mm. I, li- I like that distinction between accountability and understanding. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will have more rising right after this, including Brianna's radar. Can't wait for that. Stay with us. Well, Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, last week, former Daily Show host John Stewart interviewed a bipartisan panel of former State Department heads, which proved that when it comes to foreign policy, there is no red, no blue, just American empire. Now, it's a 44-minute interview with plenty to provoke if you're looking for fodder for these tense Thanksgiving dinner conversations. But one excerpted clip in particular has been making the rounds, and I think it's because it's such a perfect exemplification of what's wrong with our foreign policy apparatus. In it, Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice are completely take for granted the U.S.'s role as, quote, the world's policeman. When questioned about the wisdom of intervention in Libya, which even Obama describes as his worst mistake, Hillary declined to consider even for a moment whether intervention was the best course of action. Instead, she justified the NATO intervention, which involved over 7,000 bombing missions and which has led to the rise of literal slave markets in Libya on the basis that then-leader Muammar Gaddafi threatened to kill his own people like cockroaches. Here's the first part of the clip. You know, just very briefly on Libya, because that was on my watch. Um, but this is not, again, No, no, but, not, I, I want, yeah. but I want to make a larger point, because, yeah. you know, Gaddafi was a bad actor. Everybody knew he was a bad sure. actor. And he threatened to kill his people by cockroaches. The United States was actually the supporter of European countries through NATO and the Arab League, which for the very first time came and said, we want to be part of trying to protect the people of Libya now. So I feel that that particular intervention, we had certain capabilities militarily that nobody else had, which we used to assist them. But, you know, the Emiratis were flying and the Jordanians were flying, et cetera. The problem, and this is where I think you you make a really good point. The problem is, okay, Gaddafi's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, his horrible prisons are emptied. What comes next? Right. That's what comes next? And that's, that, the point. that's always a problem because that's, there's yeah. always a vacuum. 
uh, because look, dictators don't allow institutions to uh, to flourish. So when you take the dictator out, there are no institutions. That's right. So that's but, but the question becomes: Do you then say let Gaddafi go ahead and kill his people because it's going to be hard afterwards? Or in our case, uh, we thought Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. You're going to let that continue, or are you going to take him out? And then do the best that you can in helping people to recover. You have to recognize that it's going to be hard once you take the dictator out. <laughs> Holy smokes, who would have thought you need to define the goals of your intervention and consider what happens in the void once you topple a regime? Apparently not to former secretaries of state. And looking at the U.S. involvement in Ukraine, I'm afraid this is a lesson that America still hasn't learned. Now, for context, at the beginning of this clip, Clinton is referring to a speech Gaddafi made to supporters about protests calling, uh, sorry, sorry, about uh, supporters um, about protesters calling for his resignation, in which he told his supporters to attack the, quote, cockroaches, greasy rats, and cats protesting against him. Now, one doesn't need to approve of that language or the incitement to violence to admit that the standard for dropping bombs on a sovereign nation is certainly higher than mere despotic language. After all, the U.S. loves to back dictators when those dictators back the global capital order. It's why Biden has kowtowed to Saudi Arabia's MBS, despite saying he'd make him a pariah, and why Trump joked, who's my favorite dictator, during a 2019 summit attended by Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Johns Hopkins professor Robert Gutman hits the nail on the head when he attributes America's inconsistency on the matter of dictators to cynical self-interest. Moreover, if dehumanizing language that incited militias to violence were a cause for humanitarian intervention, the U.S. could be ripe for invasion. I'm old enough to remember during the 2016 Democratic primary, Hillary Clinton was dogged by statements she had made in the past about black and brown children, describing them as super predators that had to be, quote, brought to heel. Language that is deeply dehumanizing and which came in tandem with tough on crime policies that incarcerated and killed a generation of Americans. What her remarks didn't do, well, invite an international humanitarian intervention on behalf of the U.S. prison population, the largest prison population in the world, according to data from 2015. Of course, one of the biggest criticisms of NATO's Libyan intervention was that it selectively took elements of Gaddafi's rhetoric at face value. That's a quote from the United Kingdom's parliamentary investigation into the aftermath of the war, which concluded that the government failed to identify that the threat to civilians was overstated and that the rebels NATO was backing included a significant Islamist extremist element. The report concluded that Gaddafi was not in fact planning to massacre civilians and that reports of his plans to do so were propaganda spread by Western governments and the rebels themselves. But America did what Gaddafi did not. The New York Times investigation found credible accounts of dozens of civilians killed by NATO. We saw the same type of propaganda used to justify the first Gulf War as tales of incubator babies uh, being killed filled uh, headlines. And lo and behold, the specter of weapons of mass destruction is still being leveraged to avoid accountability for U.S. interventionism. Just take a listen. Should the United States be selective in the use of its military power? Right. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Uh, after Afghanistan and Iraq, which we did for security reasons, not because we wanted to spread democracy at gunpoint, but for security reasons. Although ultimately we were told that spreading democracy would make the world safer because well, actually, freer countries would be more Well, I think if, you, if you actually look at the record, 
uh, Democrat, uh, democratic countries actually don't invade their neighbors. Democratic countries don't harbor terrorists. Uh, democratic countries don't use weapons of mass destruction. So I think they I don't would harbor de- them, but they have them. Well, you can't. It, it'd be hard to. But, I mean, but, that but John, was planned but, but in but Germany. But they're not aided. They're not aided. I, I understand what you're saying. Right. I understand and, what you're saying. And yeah. the always that, that to, is a distinction. <laughs> that clip now reads a little bit like a like a Thanksgiving dinner conversation. Look, I, at first I had to take on the idea that Iraq and Afghanistan were motivated by security interests rather than spreading democracy. Stewart did well to push back here, but I'd argue not quite strongly enough. Spreading democracy, of course, was an explicit justification for these wars. In a 2005 news conference, for instance, Bush alluded to a broader strategic objective, which is the establishment of democracy. In a 2003 speech, Bush explained that America's, quote, commitment to democracy is tested in the Middle East. He went on to say, quote, securing democracy in Iraq is the work of many hands. American and coalition forces are sacrificing for the peace of Iraq and for the security of free nations. Spreading democracy was a feature, not a bug of those invasions, and pretending otherwise is some of the boldest revisionist history I've ever seen. But Rice's next claim? that democratic countries don't invade their neighbors, harbor terrorists, or use weapons of mass destruction really takes the cake. America provides military assistance to 73% of the world's dictatorships, including Saudi Arabia, whose intervention in Yemen has caused civilian deaths, illegal killings, torture, gender-based violence, and famine. Only one country has ever dropped an atomic bomb, of course. That's us. Moreover, even in relative peacetime, the U.S. drops an average of 46 bombs a day. Laos has the distinction of being the most heavily bombed nation in the world because of the 260 million bombs America dropped on it in the name of spreading democracy. Yet Condoleezza Rice has the audacity to claim that America's military power is a global force of, of justice and good. How much longer are Americans going to let the bipartisan blob weaponize legitimate humanitarian crises to create more humanitarian crises? How much longer will they lie about war crimes to justify war? How long will journalists, pro-peace politicians, and the voting public let them? So, Robbie, this was a pretty galling interview. It did the rounds. You know, a lot of leftists have been talking about it. I mean, what do you make of it? Yeah, I thought it was, uh, I, well, I agree with you very substantially in what you were saying. And John Stewart was a pretty um, well-informed and, and pretty on-point critic of the Iraq war throughout the aughts in, you know, in his, in the Daily Show, which was, you know, mu- that was must-watch viewing for, um, for everyone who had grown to be very, uh, very <laughs> not on board with what was going on. So it was interesting to see him, I just threw my, threw my pencil, you, you're, miss, you're not in the studio, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, you're, you're not going to get friendly fire here. Um, I was surprised that he didn't push back more, given that was his history, especially with regard to that conflict. It was absolutely justified on grounds of spreading democracy. That's just, she's just not telling the truth there, Condoleezza Rice, or she's rewritten it in her own head. Absolutely. There's no question it was justified spreading democracy. George Bush justified it that way. I'm sure Hillary Clinton did as well. So the idea that, I mean, neither of these justifications end up working because it was a very foolish effort in in either case, but um, they want to say it was just about our own security or something. That's not at all, that's not at all what they said. Well, in fact, polls about like the the excuse of spreading democracy, it used to be 
useful. It used to work and it used to be popular. But in fact, it is the Iraq and Afghanistan wars that taught Americans not to buy into that justification anymore. And now, you know, spreading democracy polls very poorly as a consequence of what Americans learned about those conflicts. So yeah, that that was pretty egregious. Um, and this, you know, we had a little bit of this conversation yesterday about to what extent is it what about is and to talk about America's own um, misdoings versus not. And I think a conversation like this is why I think it's useful always to put these things in context. And I don't think it's necessarily what about them because you, you have people not just saying there's a tragedy over there. We have to intervene. They're saying bold, broad statements like democracies don't do anything wrong. Democracies don't have weapons of mass destruction. Democracies don't don't inflict these kinds of harms on the world as though we, we don't mm -hmm. support the overwhelming majority of dictatorships that are also characterized conveniently as democracies if, if we want. And like this all is in some semantic game that's justifying American, um, you know, the, 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 the global economic interests of our country. And at least if they just said it plainly, we're going to invade because we want oil. We're going to invade because we're threatened by a different economic system that would, would threaten the, the dollar's hegemony. You know, I wouldn't agree with it, but there's something particularly perverse about trying to use people who are really struggling around the world to justify these imperial aims. Right. And Libya is such a good example as well. I, I think often a forgotten example, maybe perhaps the clearest example of just utterly no justification, makes no sense. We wanted to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe. We caused a humanitarian catastrophe. Right. We made that that country vulnerable to ISIS's rise, which did not contribute to our own safety. People were being, you know, executed by extremists in the streets after after that government was toppled due to our intervention. Hillary Clinton masterminded it. It was the worst mistake of Barack Obama's entire presidency. I think he feels that way about it, too. And then we almost mm -hmm. elected the woman who was almost solely responsible for that. It's uh, just, just incredible. And then she gets to, you know, have an interview and lecture us all about what, you know, what a smart foreign policy would look like. It just makes absolutely no sense at all. Yep. We'll have yep. more rising after this. Thank you for that, Brianna. Stay with us. Joe Biden turns 80 years old tomorrow. Happy birthday, Mr. President, but it's time for a younger generation to lead across the board. That was former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley on President Biden celebrating his 80th birthday over the weekend, making him the first octogenarian president in our history. It means also that if he were to be reelected for second term, he would be nearly 90 years old by the time he leaves office. So is he too old to lead? Mm, a recent Reuters Ipsos survey revealed that most Americans, 68 percent to be exact, think Biden might not be fit for the challenge of running again in two years, while nearly half, 49 percent of Americans, feel the same about his likely opponent, Donald Trump. Trump would be 82 when he leaves office if he were to win in 2024. Here to dive into the question of whether it's time for the older generation to make room for fresh blood is Teslin Figaro, host of the Straight Shot No Chasers podcast. Welcome back, Teslin. Always great to be here. Thanks for having me. What do you think is going on here with Nikki Haley? Is just the Republican Party setting up some non-personal reasons why they're going to back DeSantis as opposed to mm. Trump in a couple of years? 
Yeah, it's not a non-personal reason. I think it's, it's quite personal, uh, even seeing that on the Democrat side. But, you know, I've always talked about the importance of new leadership. I have talked about the fact that uh, we can no longer wait on them to pass the torch. We must take it because they simply just don't want to pass it. But I am uh, optimistic about new leadership stepping down, even though I know uh, Hakeem Jeffries and the new leadership that they allegedly choose will be hell uh, for progressives. I do think it is important that uh, there is now a realization uh, that you just can't have, you know, great grandparents leading the country. And it's no disrespect, you know, to someone's age. I appreciate wisdom. But there is something called uh, people that are closest to the solution or closest to the problem. And so who better to talk about education than folks with school age children like myself, a 15 year old? Who better to talk about the housing crisis uh, than those who are actually trying to purchase a home or trying to, you know, cover a mortgage? Who better to talk about, you know, what is going on in college than those who are coming straight out of college or in college? So when you talk about the problems as a whole, um, to be two or three generations removed uh, from the problem, it just doesn't make sense. The average person in Congress is in their 80s. You know, so I believe in uh, term limits. I've always talked about that. And I think it's important um, that you have new leadership uh, step forward. And, you know, what's so interesting, Bree, is they call younger leadership people in their 50s. So, right. so they're not even talking about, you know, in their 30s or 40s. To them, young leadership, Nikki Haley, I believe, is uh, 52 or 53. You know, I don't, don't want to misquote it, but they're, they, to them, new leadership is in their 50s, half a century old. Um, so we are far, uh, you know, removed uh, from actually having new leadership that is actually living uh, the problems that we talk about. Yeah, the average age of the people running our government in Congress, et cetera, the presidency has just gone way, way, way up over time. I mean, partly because people people didn't used to live that long or reliably live that long. Some people live that long. But on the average has gone up. And, uh, and I think they've accrued, the people in power have accrued more institutional power, have more staying power. So you have these leaders who can just stay in power uh, forever and ever and ever. And uh, you're right, it is a, it's an issue with letting new people come in and talk about issues that they know more about. You know, we're, I, I would add to that tech. We talk so much about, uh, about social media, about tech and privacy and data and surveillance, all things that young people have a just much more intuitive understanding and grasp of. And like people in their 80s have no, people in their 50s have no idea. People of our age have so. <laughs> no idea about some of this stuff. Right, right. Well, look, Tesla, I like that point you made also about it not necessarily just being chronology, um, but that it's a kind of a closeness to these real world issues. And I wonder if some of the problem with Joe Biden is not just that he's old, but that he's been in Washington since he was, what, 30, 30 years old, approximately, when he first uh, got into Congress. Uh, you know, who do you see as a natural heir on the Democrat side? Because I think that part of what the problem is here for Democrats who might feel the same way, according to these polls, is that it's not exactly here clear who would fill in for him. Certainly Kamala Harris has her issues. Yeah, I don't, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think that it's, the problem is not that the leadership is out there. We just don't see them. When you said, who do you see? How can you see when the same people are on the microphone all of the time? I'm not even talking about just in the politics, but even on social justice, you have the same leaders who are leading the same fight that they've been doing for over 50 years. And let's just be real about it. It's not even about them just living long. It's ego, Bree. This is mm -hmm. about ego. Power. And once you get uh, so bought by people, and what I mean when I say bought, I don't mean literally somebody's, you know, cashing you out.
But once you owe favor after favor after favor, you never untangle yourself from that. Um, and it, it doesn't take long to be bought, if you will. And I know the left always talks about that new leadership that came in and allegedly sold out in the first 365 days. So it doesn't take long, you know, for somebody to, to, to cash you out. But when you look at just, you know, having to stay uh, over time because of your ego, because of your pride, because uh, these folks actually turn into celebrities in their own minds. Uh, this has a lot to do with it. And I've been complaining about this for a minute, not even just, again, in politics, but even on the social justice side. If you are not relating uh, to the, the common person of, of being you know, close to that experience of what it means you know, to actually have to wait tables or what does it mean to actually have to buy a house or what does it mean to raise a child or even be single uh, and trying to buy a home. You are just you're just not close enough uh, to the problem. So I think you're far removed from the solution. I do appreciate institutional knowledge. I do think institutional knowledge is important. I do think that, you know, having uh, a wealth of uh, background to be able to help, you know, a younger generation lead. But this is not the case with this breed. This is a case of ego of not wanting to leave that position of power uh, and, and just holding on to it for simply no other reason uh, but selfish. While most Americans think Biden is not up to the task of serving as president again, according to a USA Ipsos poll, 71% of Democrats feel he can win if he runs, and their confidence in the president seems to have improved from his standing in August. Well, I suspect that's because uh, he kind of took home a win uh, during the election. So is it the case that as long as Biden can still deliver, you know, what, uh, why, there's going to be less of an argument to, uh, to change, certainly to change directions, to change personalities, when Biden can, despite people's problems with his age, uh, he, he got the party over the finish line here. Was that so, Biden or was that Dobbs? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, when people are taking that poll, they're comparing him to Trump. You know, just to be honest about it, they're comparing him to what I go with Biden or what I go with Trump. So if people had to vote again and if they reluctantly had to vote for Biden, a lot of folks would just choose Biden over Trump. But let's be clear, uh, he didn't get to a win. Let me just go ahead and dispel that myth. I, I get it that historically, you know, most folks uh, are used to the, the current administration being in power. But let's be clear, we can argue all day about, oh, well, you know, at least he didn't lose by two touchdowns. The bottom line is they lost the House. They lost the game period, end of discussion. And they still do not control the Senate. Joe Manchin controls the Senate, which is technically a Republican. So as far as I'm concerned, Republicans control the House and the Senate when we when we, when we we really look at it and who moves that power. So there was not, to me, a win. I don't understand what the celebration is all about. This, uh, the last administration led us into a insurrection. So the simple fact that you barely got over the finish line mm -hmm. from a a party or a, a the leadership of the party, Trump, if you will, that literally stormed the Capitol, that's not a win. It's pathetic at best. It should have been a sweep. If the Democrats were all of the things that they say they were, why was it just a sweep? Why did the Republicans still win, still win the House? So Democrats, and this is why I'm an independent, they always do this. They celebrate things that are not, they live in this uh, fiction world, and they celebrate things that they shouldn't be celebrating instead of asking yourself, you know what, we barely got over the finish line, so maybe we need to do something different. And maybe that's what they're doing, uh, Bree. Maybe that's why Jim Clyburn, Nancy Pelosi, and all of them are saying, hey, you know what, it's time for us to step back because we really didn't win at, at the way we thought we would. I don't know if the new direction that they're going in is going to be a win for them, but I think they realize that we need to do something different. And Republicans are realizing that as well with Trump. They're falling off like flies. Mm -hmm. So this is the time that I, I believe that all Democrats and Republicans and independents should infiltrate both sides uh, because now I think both are very vulnerable in ways that they haven't been in recent history.
Tesla and Figaro calling off, out the, the soft bigotry of political ex, low, low political expectations. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Always. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you right after this. We're learning that Jeffrey Epstein reportedly was trying to set Prince Andrew up to extort the queen. That's according to financial advisor John Bryan, who also dated the Prince, uh, Prince Andrew's ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson. Epstein blackmailed rich men and made them pay to avoid scandal, is what he's claiming. He said, quote, I believe Andrew is innocent. If he was genuinely involved, as alleged, Epstein would have used that to try and bribe the queen into paying millions to protect her family. Well, Prince Andrew has denied any wrongdoing. He settled a lawsuit with Virginia Griffey, one of Epstein's victims, back in March of this year. Robbie, how do we know, uh, or how how does you know um, uh, the, uh, John Bryan know that Epstein didn't try to bribe the Queen? We don't, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I don't I mean, know. I mean, are there some kind of disclosures of yeah. the royal pocketbook that would make it very obvious if there were, were any money spent in a way that it shouldn't have been? Are we so convinced that the, there aren't other ways to make? Because I'm just saying, I'm not the, the 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 posture here of the various actors is very odd. You have, you know, someone who had a relationship with the you know the the person involved coming to his defense in a way that seems like sort of credible, but also this accusation that, you know, you can't be bribed usually uh, unless there's some evidence. It doesn't mean you absolutely did the thing that you're being accused of, but unless there's some um, evidence that would uh, reflect poorly on you. So it, I don't know. It is, yeah, it, I don't it, buy it, this it, guy's it, defense of Prince Andrew at all because, I mean, what if, what if like what what kind of happened is that Prince Andrew has taken a lot of heat for this. So maybe he just they were like, no, we're not going to pay you or, you know, they just tried to ignore Epstein. And then this information kind of leaked out. Right. That that like that doesn't mean there was nothing improper. Like, that's kind of what happened. So I don't I, I don't buy that as as like, oh, Prince Andrew is necessarily innocent. Um, I mean, like he 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 paid for his public association with Epstein, you know, based on some information about that. So that could just be, maybe maybe they didn't pay Epstein and then this happened, or it, like that doesn't necessarily mean that he's innocent. So I, I don't get that part of it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, meanwhile, uh, Virginia Giffray's lawsuit against Alan Dershowitz has been dismissed, according to the New York Times. Giffray, who accused the law professor of sexually assaulting her when she was a teenager, now says she may have made a mistake. And so I wanted to bring this up because we um, we interviewed Alan Dershowitz. It was me and Ryan Grimm and uh, Emily Jashinsky a few weeks ago. And I would describe it as pre it was pretty aggressive questioning, frankly. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I want to set the record straight with all and, and with all, you know, all fairness to Alan Dershowitz. And he, you know, he took the he took the questions. He answered all of them. He was happy to, to stay and have that interview go as long as it as it could and answer everything he was asked. But I think a lot of people had questions about his involvement with with Epstein based on that. So it's importantly, I think I want to point out here. So Virginia Gouffray, who has previously accused him of sexual misconduct with respect to in relation to the Epstein stuff, she, she's saying pretty unequivocally that she thinks she misremembered that and, and she you know, is not standing by 
um, comments, statements she made about Alan Dershowitz. So I think, in, in all fairness to him, it, it is important to publicize, um, given how, how critical we were of him, that she says um, that she is walking that back um, as, as an outcome to their, their, their uh, litigation. What do you, to what do you attribute the turnaround? And here's why I'm asking. Mm-hmm. There can be incentives on both sides to make an accusation that's false and to retract an accusation that's real. So I have no idea what happened. The only people who know what happened are uh, Virginia, um, you know, and, and um, Dershowitz. Mm-hmm. However, we have seen certain instances which have raised the public eye of um, Donald Trump's first wife making accusations for years, writing about it in her book, and then retracting it when Donald Trump ran for president. And there were people who said the implication was that he basically paid her off so that he wouldn't have to deal with those kinds of allegations in the context of his own presidential run when he was getting all these other accusations from other women as well. You know, and so I, you know, I, I have, I'm not, I wouldn't weigh in either way, because again, None of us have personal knowledge of it, but I don't think it's necessary, necessarily exculpatory when a victim, uh, an alleged victim, retracts. Yeah, but in, in the Trump case, I mean, it could be either way. It could be she exaggerated those claims in the context of a divorce settlement where tons and tons sure. and tons of money was at stake, right? So we don't, we just, sure. like, we, we just, we don't know whether it was whether that that was where the exaggeration was taking place or like yeah I, I right I totally hear you she or she or maybe it was true and then she had incentive to walk it back um, look but I, I I think frankly I think like members of the public journalists if, if the if the accuser recants in that strong language like she has here and says no I think I misremembered this I, I I'm no longer making this accusation I, I think from a due process standpoint, from a you know presumption of innocence standpoint, I think the responsible thing to do is is then t- is is to accept what she is saying now as that that should be that that's the word on on what happened. I, I don't see hmm. it, 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 that feels right. Maybe that's unsatisfying unsatisfying, but that feels like the most fair thing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, it, so, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, a lawsuit between Dershowitz and CNN is set to take place in May of 2023. In his lawsuit, Dershowitz accuses CNN of defamation, alleging that the network repeatedly aired a, quote, deceptively edited clip of his defense of former President Trump during the first impeachment trial. So, you know, we'll have to see about that. You know, one other one of those kind of high profile defamation lawsuits against a mainstream media company, which often have kind of, you know, fraught issues because, um, opinion statements are protected. It, you know, it has to be an assertion of fact. It has to be there has to be actual malice involved, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But that again, I don't know. I haven't looked closely enough. Maybe they edited him in such a way that it is clearly defamatory and malicious. But um, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, look, the, the, as the news gets more opinion based, and you know, the ap- the public appetite seems to be for skewed media coverage on both sides of the aisle. People want to take uh, the most popular shows are shows like Tucker Carlson, where it's not just straight news as it is opinion. I wonder if we're going to see an increasing number of these defamation suits, because it does seem to be perhaps the only way to keep folks in line. My concern, however, is then, you know, who has the resources to actually sue and get their record corrected about them and who doesn't? And are we going to see justice and corrected records for people who are affluent while, you know, regular people are, are, routinely smeared um, mm-hmm. uh, by these kinds of institutions. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and a higher good profile people on Twitter and social media and things like that. You see yeah. it all the time. Yeah, although so, you know sometimes we we see examples of people who were not ho- high profile people until the media came for them, and then they you know mm. think of like the Covington kids or set you know mm. people of that of that nature. So. Um, Mm-hmm. And in a lot of these cases, it, you know, there ends up being some kind of settlement, which doesn't necessarily mean that it was defamation or would have proved to be defamation, but it was more convenient for the company and for the person, you know, to reach some agreement where they don't even get to that point. So we will have to yeah. see.